Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu. With me in studio is Amanda Machaka, Tabisa Lohoko, and Figuleli Mwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN envoy expresses concerns over political situation in the DRC. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi begins state visit to South Africa. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu meets his Ethiopian counterpart. In economics, IMF says South Africa is facing significant challenges. And in sports news, South Africa's under-20 soccer team ready for youth championship qualifier against Lesotho. The first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has met with his Ethiopian counterpart, Haile Mariam Dessalon, in Addis Ababa on Thursday. The Prime Ministers and their delegations discussed ways to increase bilateral cooperation on a series of issues, including water, agriculture, communications, tourism, and education. Agreements were signed in science, technology, and tourism. Netanyahu emphasized the importance of the relationship between Ethiopia and Israel. And Jews from Ethiopia, thousands of Ethiopian Jews serve in our army, participate in our politics, take part in our economy, in our culture. They help enrich Israeli society every day and in every way. They act as a human bridge between our two peoples. On the way here, I spoke to two young flight attendants of Ethiopian descent. They are proud to be Israelis, and they're proud of their Ethiopian heritage. And one of them is seeing her family here for the first time in seven years. United States Special Envoy to Sudan and South Sudan, Donald Booth, has concluded a three-day mission to South Sudan's capital, Juba, where he met with both President Salva Kiir and Opposition Leader Vice President Riek Masha. They looked at the progress that has been made towards the implementation of the peace agreement, including the formation of the transitional government of national unity. Booth shares his impressions of the situation in South Sudan. I went to South Sudan and I met with President Kiir and with opposition leader Riek Machar because it's very important that they continue to move forward in implementing the peace agreement that was signed last August. Uh, unfortunately, while we had some promising uh, meetings uh, and decisions that were reached when they met in early June, they have not been implemented. So a number of things that uh, would be fairly easy to implement, such as lifting the state of emergency, releasing prisoners of war, that hasn't happened yet. But some more fundamental issues also remain stuck. The European Parliament has called on African countries to end the impunity that surrounds the killing and persecution of albinos, especially in Malawi. People with albinism have been killed and had their graves robbed because of widespread beliefs that their body parts bring good luck and wealth. The phenomenon is especially common in Malawi, where about 10,000 people have the condition. There have been around 69 attacks, including 18 murders of albinos in the southern African country since November 2014. Last month, 
month, Amnesty International condemned what it described as an unprecedented wave of brutal attacks against albinos in Malawi. The African Union plans to pull its soldiers out of Somalia by December 2020. According to a statement issued on Wednesday, the exit strategy formulated by the AU's Peace and Security Council calls for the staggered withdrawal of 22,000 troops in the AU mission in Somalia, Amazon, to begin in October 2018 and be completed by the end of 2020. The plan was made public this week following a meeting held in Addis Ababa last month. The AU says transfer of security responsibilities will then be handed over to a capable, inclusive and effective Somali National Army. MSOM troops deployed to Somalia in 2007 to defend the internationally backed government against attacks by Al-Shabaab. And finally, 11 police officers have been shot, four fatally and seven wounded at a protest rally against police violence in Dallas, Texas. Several shots were fired. Demonstrations have been held in several cities against the shooting dead of two black men by white police officers in recent days. Dallas police say it appears that two snipers shot 11 police officers from elevated positions during the protest. One sniper and a person of interest who had turned himself in are in custody after the fatal shooting of police officers. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Amanda. It's 8.05 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A Security Council has heard that in the absence of political dialogue that results in an exclusive agreement leading to credible elections in the DRC, the country faced a severe crisis with a high probability of violence and instability. Those were the words of the UN's Deputy Secretary General in a briefing to the 15-member council as political uncertainty uncertainty over presidential elections due in November continues to grow. Opposition parties have accused the government of President Joseph Kabila of trying to cling to power after indicating elections might be delayed over logistical reasons. Show in Bryce Peace reports. There are growing concerns of a political crackdown in the Democratic Republic of Congo as the UN mission to the country makes contingency plans in the event of widespread violence over electoral concerns. In the absence of dialogue, there is a real risk that political actors could resort to unilateral decisions which may compound existing political tensions. Deputy Secretary General Jan Eliasson speaking in the Security Council. An inclusive and credible dialogue among Congolese stakeholders is the only realistic way to defuse political tensions, overcome the electoral impasse, and prevent violence. Such a dialogue should result in an inclusive agreement that could lead to credible presidential and legislative elections. Without it, we face the risk of a severe crisis with a high probability of violence and persistent instability. President Kabila, who has been in power since 2001, is constitutionally barred from standing for a third term and possible delays in the November elections and a subsequent ruling by the country's constitutional court that Kabila could remain in power if elections were delayed has placed many, including here at the United Nations, on edge. This as the security situation in the country's historically volatile east remains serious. 
Significant progress has been achieved in stabilizing the Democratic Republic of the Congo. To preserve these gains, political leaders must listen to the aspirations of their people who have suffered far too long from continuous political crisis and violent conflict. Dialogue, respect for the rule of law and human rights, and democratic participation and practices are the best way to prevent continued violence and suffering. I count on the Security Council to give its full and steadfast support to dialogue and for the strengthening of democratic practices in the DRC. The DRC's ambassador, Ignace Gata Mavita Walafuta, has consistently dismissed accusations from the international community that his government has shut down the political space in the country as political tensions build. The truth is that in the DRC, the political space is uh, probably the most open one in the region. The uh, people who target, um, who come to our country or who visit our country can uh, testify to that. We in our country have more than 400 political parties and hundreds of TV and radio chains who, uh, channels who are free in their editorial policies and um, they belong to various political parties. More than that, these uh, channels very often are critical of public institutions very frequently critical of the head of state, and this is being done openly and without um, any concern on their part. The UN Secretariat has called on the Security Council to prevent the situation from spiraling out of control, while warning that it would be unrealistic for the UN mission MONUSCO to substitute for the state during a violent political crisis. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Disarmament and non-proliferation issues are not just for men. Female participants at a UN Peace Forum in Austria are learning. They are irrelevant just as much today as they were during the World Cold War era, says Juliet Kohler of the UN Office on Disarmament Affairs. The Women Higher Education for Peace event is the first of its kind, offering a platform for these women to meet experts in the field and network. It's also part of a wider initiative called Women Scholarship for Peace, which provides training courses for women from the global south. Kola spoke to Jocelyn Sambira on the line from Vienna. The forum was seen as a networking tool for uh, early career women professionals to meet their peers, but also meet experts from disarmament and non-proliferation. And it was seen as uh, something to complete the training courses. So we are not only teaching women about our activities and about disarmament, non-proliferation and development, but we are also giving them the tools to actually find a job in this field and to meet people and to get involved right now and not in five years and not after completing master's degree and so on. Disarmament and non-proliferation, when I read about it, when I hear about it, I don't hear a lot of women's voices. Why is that? It's kind of obscure. People don't really know what it is when they hear disarmament and non-proliferation. The first thought is that it's something old, that it's something from the Cold War and that it's not something accurate. And that is something that is only for political scientists and military attaches. But this is not true, and this is what we want to show. Everyone can contribute. You can contribute if you're a journalist. You can contribute if you are working in sciences. You can contribute if you are working in communications. You can contribute if you're an engineer. And so this is also the aim of the forum, is to bring people from different fields 
and not only the usual crowd. And once you have accepted this, then both men and women can be involved, and not only the people from the ministries of defense and the ministries of foreign affairs. So what are the issues of today regarding disarmament and proliferation, if you can just give us one example? It's really clear today when you look at the news that one of the issues of today is terrorism, and it's essential for us to understand that disarmament and proliferation is not something from the past, but it's something for now, and that everyone needs to be involved because everyone is touched by violence and everyone can be touched by war and everyone can be touched by a terrorist attack. And if all of these attacks had been conducted with weapons of mass destruction, then the consequences would have been much greater. And this is what people need to understand now, and this is what everyone needs to realize, and this is why we are working on this strong outreach and education campaign for women, but also for men. And I think it's also important to involve nowadays the young generation, and everyone needs to understand that this is an issue of today. When you talk about job fair, that means that there must be a need for people with skills regarding this field. What kind of yes. jobs are there? You know, One of the examples we have is that we were recruiting people for our team and we were looking for IT specialists and it was very difficult to find someone with IT expertise but also in expertise with international organizations and we also need more scientists. There is a strong campaign from for example the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna to hire more women in these fields because they just don't see the opportunity and they just don't apply. And I think this is the aim of the job phase, to show that you can contribute. And being a woman or being a man, you can do something in this field. That was Juliette Koller of the UN Office on Disarmament Affairs, and she was speaking to UN Radio's Justin Sambira. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with his Ethiopian counterpart Haile Mariam Dessalen in Addis Ababa yesterday. The Prime Ministers and their delegations discussed ways to increase bilateral cooperation on a series of issues including water, agriculture, communications, tourism and education. Agreements were signed in science, technology and tourism. Prime Minister Netanyahu has also addressed the Ethiopian Parliament. Koleta Wanjohi has more. As part of his Africa tour, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, is in Ethiopia. His visit follows similar official visits that he has made over the past few days to Kenya and Rwanda. Benjamin Netanyahu has met with the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Haile Mariam Desalen, as well as with the President of the country, Dr. Mulatu Tashome. With Ethiopia, Israel has a direct relationship because there is a section of Ethiopians who believe they are Jews, hence belong to Israel and not Ethiopia. This connection was made when Queen of Sheba from Ethiopia met King Solomon 3,000 years ago. Prime Minister Netanyahu emphasizes the importance of the relationship between Ethiopia and Israel. And Jews from Ethiopia, thousands of Ethiopian Jews serve in our army, participate in our politics, take part in our economy, in our culture. They help enrich Israeli society every day and in every way. They act as a human bridge between our two peoples. On the way here, I spoke to two young flight attendants of Ethiopian descent. They are proud to be Israelis, and they're proud of their Ethiopian heritage. And one of them is seeing her family here for the first time in seven years. Prime Minister Netanyahu is seeking cooperation with Ethiopia and other African countries to combat terrorism. It's important to understand that the terrorists see us, all of us, as one. And we must fight them as one. And I want to pledge to you one thing. We can defeat them. 
we will defeat them. But working together, we'll defeat them even faster. He has also promised that Israel is coming back to Africa in a greater way to promote economic growth through innovation and business opportunities in different sectors. If you can have more water for your personal use, for crops, if you can make your crops more productive, if you can grow animals to produce, and cows, to produce cows, to produce milk in greater quantities. This is the question I ask everywhere I go. Which cow produces more milk per cow in the world? You think it's a Dutch cow? You think it's a French cow? It's not. It's an Israeli cow. And soon it could be an Ethiopian cow. It has been nearly three decades before any Israel prime minister stepped in Africa. Netanyahu says that he has a vision of opening diplomatic ties with all African countries through setting up Israel embassies in African states and vice versa. While in Ethiopia, Netanyahu is also scheduled to visit the National Museum in Ethiopia before flying back to Israel on 9th of this month. Koletanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. As Zimbabweans return to work, the police announced they have arrested dozens of people, including a Belgian national, following Wednesday's mass stairway. Police spokesperson Charity Charamba said despite the isolated incidents of violence, the situation in Zimbabwe remained generally calm. The ruling party condemned the stairway, describing it as part of a regime change agenda. Shinganyoka has more from Harare. Businesses have reopened and the general public is back at work following Wednesday's national stay-away. Police say a Belgian was among a group of protesters arrested in the resort town of Victoria Falls. Police spokeswoman Charity Charamba. Fifteen white male adults and two black male adults were also arrested for carrying placards written, enough is enough, and I'm sure you can see a third force behind She said 19 people were rounded up in Harare on Wednesday for public violence and also reported other arrests in major cities. In Mashingo Central Business District, some street kids were arrested for possession of catapults. In Blawayo, a man was arrested for possession of homemade petrol bombs. Meanwhile, ZANU-PF held its National Executive Politburo meeting on Wednesday. It believes the protests are being organized by the opposition, attempting to unseat the government. On Wednesday, government denied accusations that it jammed the WhatsApp and social media platforms. For most of the day, people struggled to communicate. Cell phone companies announced the WhatsApp was down, but did not explain why. Meanwhile, government has announced that the doctors and nurses will receive the remainder of their June salaries on Thursday, a week earlier than previously promised. Fellow citizens, congratulations and well done. This, as the shutdown social media organizers declared the stay away a success. It's given government an ultimatum, one week to fire corrupt government ministers, abandon the plan to introduce local bond notes, and to lift import restrictions on basic goods or face more protests. Ivan Mawarire, leader of this flag. These are our demands, government, and we ask that you meet them. And so if we are not hearing from you, government, next week on Wednesday, we shut down. And this time we add another day, Wednesday and Thursday. We are not playing and we ask you to take us seriously. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So... If you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605 47
Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Change your game. Be the voice of young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. A program that promotes open discussion. Change your game. We bring social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the global entrepreneurship ecosystem. Our mission is to produce relevant and vibrant content and conduct interviews with dynamic stakeholders within the African entrepreneurial ecosystem that informs, educates and entertains and empowers young African entrepreneurs. Change your game. Change your game. Empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Tune in on Fridays, 1000 hours to 10:45 a.m. Central African time, and on Saturdays, 1300 hours to 1400 hours Central African time. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now members of the International Organization for Migration, IOM, have endorsed the organization's move to join the UN system. The Migration Agency decided that it would be best if it found its institutional home within the UN following the recent surge in global migration and the adoption of the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. The merger is expected to enter into force upon signature of the agreement in September during a UN summit on migrants and refugees after being submitted to the UN General Assembly for approval. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by IOM spokesperson Itai Viriri. Good morning, Itai, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu, and thank you for having me on the program. Now, Itai, what will the sought-after merger between the IOM and the UN mean for the global community regarding the migration crises? Well, first of all, I think uh, the main uh, thing really is that uh, the UN will now have a dedicated migration agency. So, as as you know, um, right now uh, there is no uh, specific entity within the UN system as it stands uh, dealing with migration, and as, uh, as we've been seeing uh, throughout uh, the last few years, migration has taken on a very significant uh, aspect in terms of uh, what's happening around the world, whether it's people who are forcibly uh, on the move or people who are just migrating to, to for their opportunities. So this is coming at, at, at an opportune time when um, uh, there's need for, for more considered effort to assist all these migrants uh, and refugees that we're seeing around the world. 
What it will mean that is that uh, obviously IOM will be we have a seat at the table at the UN table where uh, a lot of uh, decisions are made. So for for example, already within the UN system, you have the High Commissioner for Refugees, which deals specifically with refugees, but they don't deal with anyone who falls outside the brackets of uh, the Refugee Convention. So this means that then the IOM uh, takes care of those people who are outside that that convention. And I think it's it's, it's certainly a, a long overdue situation that we're getting into now. Now, let's speak about uh, how the two organizations will significantly contribute to achieving the newly adopted uh, development goals if they like when you join efforts, so IOM and UN um, working towards the SDGs? Well, it's very, very important, first of all, to note that um, unlike the Millennium Development Goals, uh, which uh, concluded in 2015, uh, the SDGs actually consistently include migration because it has been noted that migration is probably um, a global trend of our time. I mean, it's really... Uh, so encompassing when you look at what's happening around the world. So this um, uh, presents an opportunity for IOM to be involved within the UN, whereas before we've been outside looking in. And uh, in terms of uh, ensuring that the sustainable uh, development goals um, uh, ensure that migration is fit for purpose, that the migration governance and protection of migrants and refugees that are already embedded in the SDGs, we are able to better uh, ensure this within the UN. And uh, really what we have been calling for for the last few years is that managed migration is actually very, very positive for society. If you facilitate orderly, safe, regular, and responsible migration, then the society benefits quite uh, significantly. So this is an opportunity for us to be able to do that within uh, the UN family. Now, just speaking of being within the UN family, does this mean more money for the IOM to tackle the issue of uh, migration? Well, what I can certainly say, and I'm not just saying that because I'm within the organization myself, but we certainly bring uh, into the UN uh, operational efficiency, flexibility and cost effectiveness that the IOM is known for within the international uh, intergovernmental organization sector. So I think that's certainly one, one, one big advantage. But as I said earlier, you know, we are also coming to the table, uh, which means that um, we're able to access uh, certain funding structures that perhaps we haven't been able to access more, more readily. Uh, and also it just means that um, we are able to complement other parts of the UN. As I said, already in the UN you have uh, the High Commissioner for Refugees. You also have other agencies like UNICEF, so we can better work with them in terms of children uh, who are migrating either alone or with their families. We can also work with other UN agencies more directly, you know, like um, ITU, the, the International Telecommunications Unit. So it's, 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 it's a win-win for, for, for all concerned um, uh, entities within the UN that they have this agency that specializes on, on migration. Now you've got uh, you recently had new members join the IOM, which is China, Tuvalu, and the Solomon Islands. Um, are they understanding the move for IOM, IOM uh, joining forces or becoming under um, a, sort of a division of the UN? And are all member states um, happy with the move uh, to be a part of the UN? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, first of all, um, we're very, very uh, pleased to have uh, China, Solomon Islands, and Tuvalu join uh, the UN, which brings us to uh, 165 member states. For example, I mean, China itself, uh, without looking at the international picture, but within China itself, you're talking of 250, uh, over 250 million internal migrants, which is massive, which is actually so much more than the number of international migrants around the world, which is around 244 million. So that's a huge and significant player. And as you know, China is uh, certainly one of the um, countries that are taking a lead across all sectors. So it's it's fantastic to have them on board. Solomon Islands and Tuvalu are quite significant in that they are in, in a region of the world where migration really is going to happen mostly because of climate change. These are islands that are um, uh, being inundated by the whole change in, in climate, and therefore they will need tremendous support uh, when it comes to dealing with the effects of climate change, especially migration-related. Uh, all in all, I mean, the, 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 the three countries that have just joined us, obviously have joined us at, at, at such a fantastic time when we're about to join the UN, so there will be certainly more benefits there. And it also means that we, we, we are spreading our reach uh, to, to every corner of the of the globe, what happens mostly in, is that we operate uh, in countries, but we're able to have that global risk that many agencies do not have. So that certainly is seen as a big advantage for for our member states. Now, just bearing that in mind that you have a better reach, um, what does this mean for the European migration crisis going forward after September, after everything has been um, officiated? What are the first steps going forward with regards to the crisis that uh, uh, Europe is facing? Well, one thing that I can certainly say, even though this is quite a momentous occasion for the, for the, for the organization, really going to be business as usual. We will continue uh, fighting on behalf of migrants all around the world, uh, whether those who are internally displaced or those who are arriving in Europe, those who are anywhere where they are, they are, they are, they are, they are migrating for, for whatever reason, we will continue to be the leading agency working on their behalf. One thing that perhaps is not um, uh, usually acknowledged is that IOM actually is a, a one of the key logistical uh, agencies around the world which provides shelter. So we are one of the two global leaders around the world providing shelter to migrants who are either displaced or on the move or who have no other means to look after, uh, to look after their accommodation needs. So we will continue to do that. And in fact, we hope to even uh, increase our capacity now that we will we, 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 uh, we'll be part of the UN. So really, it should not um, uh, lessen in, in any of the work that we do around the world. But in fact, we hope to have an even greater f- uh, footprint wherever migrants, refugees, uh, internally displaced people need help. Itai, thank you so much for joining us. We have to leave it there for now. You're welcome. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. That was Itai Viriri, spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration in Geneva, Switzerland. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Dozens of people, including a Belgian national, arrested in Zimbabwe following Wednesday's mass stairway. The European Parliament calls on African countries to end the impunity that surrounds the killing and persecution of albinos, especially in Malawi. 
and the African Union plans to pull its 22,000 soldiers out of Somalia by 2020. Details at the top of the hour. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. South Africa is hoping for a bigger slice of the Indian market, with the country currently one of the fastest-growing economies in the world. President Jacob Zuma will be meeting with the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi at the Union Buildings in Pretoria today. Modi is on a two-day state visit as part of renewed efforts to strengthen bilateral trade and investment ties between the two BRICS member states. Tsepoe Ganeng reports. India is looking to deepen its access to the African market, while South Africa wants to level the current trade deficit. Prime Minister Modi started his four-nation tour of the continent in Mozambique before arriving in Pretoria. Delhi and Pretoria have long-standing relations dating back to the anti-party struggle with full diplomatic relations established in 1993. Over the years, it has grown to be South Africa's largest trading partner, with trade between the two countries standing at 94 billion rand last year. But the trade balance is in India's favor, with South Africa exporting about 41 billion rands of goods, but importing over 53 billion rands worth of goods and services. International Relations and Cooperation Minister Maitenkwana Mashabani says they want to promote South African exports, especially value-added products. India's economy is expected to grow by 7.5% in 2016 to 7.7 in 2017 and it is currently the fastest growing major economy in the world. The Indian middle class is expanding rapidly. At present stands over 400 million people. South Africa is therefore looking to strengthen commercial relations with India by focusing on exports of value-added manufactured goods as well as the services sector. There are more than 100 Indian companies that have invested in South Africa. The investments concentrated mainly in mining, financial services, pharmaceuticals and manufacturing sectors. On the other hand, South Africa's interests in India are largely in the financial sector, machinery and equipment and software and IT services. Economics expert on the Asia-Pacific region, Sanusha Naidu, says South African companies need to improve their competitiveness in order to tap into the lucrative Indian market. Well, one of the key issues for, for, for this visit by Prime, uh, Prime Minister Modi is to actually enhance those relationships around uh, production, around trade and so forth. And of course it's significant because South Africans to access the Indian market it has such a big uh, purchasing power parity, and also the fact that it's a, it's a big emerging uh, market in terms of potential. 
The challenge for South Africa, however, is that it needs to break into the market and compete with domestic producers as well. So the question would be for South Africa to try and find synergies where it can actually integrate into different global value chains or rather uh, value chains that are relevant to India in terms of the manufacturing sector, but beyond that in science and technology. But civil society and human rights organizations don't want the meeting between President Zuma and Prime Minister Modi to just be about signing deals. They are planning to stage protests against his visit, accusing his government of clamping down on civil society organizations. Mark Haywood speaks on behalf of the Coalition of Human Rights and Civil Society Organizations. There's growing repression of civil society in India. There's growing persecution of civil society organizations. We would like President Zuma to raise it with Prime Minister Modi. We would like him to say, look, we are part of the BRICS partnership. I want you to understand that civil society NGOs are very important in any democracy. They're very important because they ensure accountability, they ensure transparency, they ensure service delivery to the people. So we're saying to Zuma, please raise this issue. And we're saying to Modi, please back off. Accept the role that civil society has to play in India and in other countries. Both President Zuma and his Indian counterpart are expected to use their bilateral discussions to reflect on some pertinent issues affecting their allies in the BRICS. Brazil is currently embroiled in a political turmoil which has resulted in the suspension of President Dilma Rousseff who will now face an impeachment trial. In Russia, the Kremlin is still battling to contain the negative impact of EU sanctions. The West is accusing President Vladimir Putin of backing a secessionist rebellion in the Ukrainian region of Crimea. I'm Tsepo Iganeng in Pretoria. Deputy President of South Africa's ruling ANC, Cyril Ramaphosa, says he is confident that the people around the Dawung area in the country's northwest province are committed to the ANC and that he expects them to vote for the party during next month's municipal polls. Ramaphosa, accompanied by Northwest ANC Chairperson Supra Humapilu, hit the streets of Dawung, speaking to the residents and lobbying for votes. Patrick Dintra reports. This is the best taxi rank in the whole country. Emo Dawung Taung area which is wholly rural with little or no sustainable tax base borders the provinces of the northwest and the northern Cape. Controlled predominantly by traditional leaders, most of the residents depend on subsistence farming for survival as well as government grants. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, accompanied by northwest provincial leaders, interacted with the community at the local taxi rank at Town Station. Ramaphosa says, while challenges such as lack of water and jobs are well known in the area, plans are underway to bring improvements. He says, many in Town have seen the ANC at work, and therefore, more developments are forthcoming. Our campaign here in Taung is in overdrive. The people of Taung are very, very committed to the ANC. They can see what the ANC is doing. The delivery is really, really going well here. The provincial government, the local governments are doing really good work. There are challenges, but for all those challenges, there are plans, clear plans that even the ordinary people on the ground know and understand. Some residents have expressed hope 
following the deputy president's visit to the area. I think it will, it will be okay now because the president is here. Because now the president is here, the work is, is going to be done. I will be happy if our president will help us because we don't have a work, we don't even have a future, we don't know where our future stands. We are very happy to see our deputy president for his visit in Taung. Ramaphosa and his entourage also took their election campaign to Mahokom village where they conducted door-to-door campaigns. Here, the community cited specific problems, the high rate of unemployment and lack of service delivery. I wish we had water in our yards. We push wheelbarrows and we are too old. There are no roads. We need jobs. Our children are not working and it hurts because we are getting old. Others are retrenched from work. Deputy President Ramaphosa promised them that the national and provincial governments will look into their challenges. Ramaphosa has also criticized independence candidates in the area, saying they will not win the coming elections. The independents are irrelevant. Independents don't mean anything. What means a lot to the people here is the ANC. And they know that any candidate who has got the seal of the ANC is a good candidate, and that is the candidate that they are going to support. So I'm least worried about those independents. They are going to lose, and they are going to lose big time. Northwest ANC Chairperson Suprama Humapelo lashed out at opposition parties, especially the EFF, which accused the Premier saying the Northwest is in the hands of corrupt leaders. Our focus is not on other parties. That includes the EFF. Our focus is on what we are doing as the African National Congress. They are making allegations against the leadership of the province. doesn't help to stand on public platforms and loud hate. When you've got evidence against any leader in government or in the ANC, you must approach the law enforcement agencies. If you make noise, you are just wasting your energy and the people will not believe you. Meanwhile, Ramaphosa is expected to take his election campaign to the Ritsobotla municipal area in Lachtenberg and Mahikeng over the coming weekend. I am Patrick Dintua, reporting in Tau. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma must personally pay $4.3 million in fringe benefit tax for the upgrades to his Nganda home. This is according to opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, which has released its determination of what the president should be liable for in tax calculations. The DA says its figure is not linked to the $510 million that Treasury determined President Zuma must pay back for non-security upgrades in line with the Constitutional Court ruling. Busi Chimombe reports. The saga of the 246 million rand upgrades at President Jacob Zuma's Nkandla home is far from over, as far as the Democratic Alliance is concerned. The party says in terms of the Income Tax Act, President Zuma owes 63.9 million rands to the South African Revenue Service for the benefits he derived from the upgrades to his Nkantla home. They have used as a basis of their determination about 35 line items, including the fire pool, tuck shop and a helipad, amongst others. Party leader Musimai Mani says this amount has nothing to do with the 7.8 million the National Treasury has determined the head of state pay back for the five items the public protector said do not constitute security upgrades. The 7.8 million focuses itself on paying for the items as articulated by the public protector. 
This is not the issue. The issue is, like any other South African, if you get a benefit from your company, you must be liable for the tax on that benefit. Jacob Zuma has benefited from the people of South Africa. In fact, unduly so, as the public protector put it. So ultimately, we believe that he must then be liable for this tax. The DA says the act applies to President Zuma, whether the benefit to him was voluntary or otherwise, saying the argument the president earlier used in Parliament that he did not ask for the upgrades in terms of the law does not apply. DA Deputy Shadow Minister of Finance, Alf Lees, says the party has reached its determination using the schedule produced by Public Works, detailing work done and costs involved in the Nkandla upgrades. We've taken those items which will remain the property of President Zuma even after he is no longer the president. And so we've gone through line by line and we've excluded items such as the 20 houses for, for the support staff and those are not included. And so our total, um, which you'll see in the schedule, is not the 250 million, it is 145 million rand. And then if you take that figure and you apply the marginal tax rate, and so you apply the 40% tax rate, you then come to a figure of, of 53 million rand. Then there's penalties, 10% penalty, um, because the tax should have been paid at the time the benefit accrued, uh, and that pulls it up to 63.9 million. The party says it will find out from SARS whether it has conducted a forensic audit to determine how much President Zuma owes in relation to Nkandla, in much the same way in which it has pursued economic freedom fighters' leader Julius Malema for his taxes. My money says it is in the public interest for this information to be disclosed, despite SARS' policy that tax affairs are private. Jacob Zuma must be prosecuted. In fact, Tom Moyani must go after to ensure that Jacob Zuma accounts for the tax on this matter. And we are asking for Jacob Zuma to, in fact, make that component of his tax submission, or in fact that component, to be transparent so that we can ensure that he's not evading tax in this instance. So we believe that without fail that amount is a conservative estimate and once an audit has been done by SARS, which we call upon Tom Moyani to do, we'll be able to get to the bottom of ensuring that Jacob Zuma pays back his tax coupled with all the other sanctions that he's facing. That report by Busi Chimombe. Our economics update up next with Tabisola Hogo. Thanks, Lulu. South Africa is hoping for a bigger slice of the Indian market, one of the fastest growing economies in the world. President Jacob Zuma is meeting with the Indian uh, uh, counterpart, uh, or rather, yes, is meeting with his Indian counterpart, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, at the Union Buildings in Pretoria. Modi is on a state visit as part of efforts to strengthen trade and investment ties with the two BRICS member states. Sepo Iganen reports. India is looking to deepen its access to the African market while South Africa wants to level the current trade deficit. Delhi and Pretoria have long-standing relations dating back to the anti-apartheid struggle with full diplomatic relations established in 1993. Over the years, it has grown to be South Africa's largest trading partner with trade between the two countries standing at about 94 billion rands last year. But the trade balance is in India's favor. 
government has embarked on a campaign to promote South African exports, especially value-added products, to the lucrative Indian market. The International Monetary Fund says while most plans aimed to boost growth may take years, South Africa must demonstrate its commitment to its vision in order to revive confidence in the economy. Now, according to the IMF assessment report on South Africa, structural reforms should be a priority in order to boost growth in jobs. IMF Mission Chief for South Africa, Laura Poppy. We have advocated for some time that you need increasing competition and you need uh, labor market policies that work for everybody, including the many millions of South Africans who are unemployed, better education and better governance. Now, we understand a lot of these things take time to bear fruit, but taking a few measures that can help uh, revive confidence and trust would really help change the path of the economy. German Chancellor Angela Merkel's cabinet has agreed to stick to plans for a balanced budget over the next four years. The plans for slowly raising state spending without taking on net new debt up to 2020 are meant to send a message of reliability and continuity after Britain's decision to leave the 28-member bloc. The cabinet approved final details of the 2017 budget and financing plans up to 2020. New Sonangol Chief Executive Isabel Dushantosh has suspended all talks relating to the sale of assets belonging to the Angolan state oil firm and stripped its internal legal department of most its powers. Dushantosh, the billionaire daughter of Angolan President Roger Dushantosh, was appointed to the Sonangol helm last month with orders to improve the efficiency of the sprawling 40-year-old firm. The statement posted on Sonangol's website after a board meeting at the end of last month said all processes of evaluation, negotiation and sale of any assets had been suspended with immediate effect. The Biofuels Association of Zambia has urged government to expedite biofuel production in the country to reduce the cost of importing fuel. The association says having a fully-fledged industry would help create jobs. It adds this will further reduce on importation costs. As 9.5% gasoline currently being imported would be produced locally, thereby empowering Zambians. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.70 to the South African rand, 10.76 Botswana Pula, 9.60 in Zambia, 7.7 British pound, 9.0 euro. Gold is trading at $1,358, platinum at $1,079 per ounce, brand crude $46.92 a barrel. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Figili Lingwati.
In our sports update this hour, we're starting off with football news. The South African National Under-20 men's team, Amajida, have wrapped up their preparations for the African Nations Cup Under-20 third round. First leg qualifier against Lesotho and have arrived in Lesotho. Amajita, who beat Namibia 2-0 on aggregate in the previous round, only need to win this tie to qualify for the AFCON Under-20 tournament in Zambia next year. Sinong, that is the Amajita head coach, was the assistant coach to Ephraim Sheikh Mashaba when Amajita won the Kosafa Cup Under-20 tournament in Lesotho in 2013. Antoine Griezmann scored twice on Thursday as France beat world champions Germany 2-0 to seal a place in the Euro 2016 final against Portugal. Having converted a controversial first-half penalty for Bastian Schweinsteiger's handball, Griezmann put the result beyond doubt with a clinical second-half effort. The victory in Marseille means Le Bleu faced Cristiano Ronaldo-led Portugal in Sunday's final at the Stade de France. Griezmann is now the top scorer at the European Championship Finals with six goals. In athletics, all hands are on deck as track and field athletes in Kenya undergo an intensive training camp in high altitude in Kasarani ahead of their Rio Olympic Games in Brazil. The current crop of athletes who've qualified for the multi-sporting spectacle are in good shape and determined to rake in medals for the East African nation. With the threat of World Anti-Doping Agency WADA disqualification now behind them, the preparations are progressive and ongoing as planned. In fact, all the coaches are on the ground in Kasaran in Kenya to help fine-tune the athletes for the Olympics. Kenyan athletics track and field coach Benjamin Mbusia says they expect more gold medals from the current crop of athletes. And uh, we came from Durban well, and uh, the team was selected last week in Eldoret. They are in camp now in uh, the same place in Eldoret. And the preparations are, are on. Uh, we are doing very good. The, the camp is in Naimoral. And uh, all the coaches are on the ground, and uh, the general things are, are, are well. Meanwhile, other athletes who are yet to qualify for the Rio Olympics will be going to the International Association of Athletics Federation, the IAAF Diamond League Tournament in Monaco for qualification. Mbusia is on record as saying that Kenya has put together one of the best teams in recent times. There will be teams in 10,000-meter race, 800-meter race, and all through the marathon where they expect their athletes to compete effectively. Well, there, there are a few who are, who are going for the Diamond, the last Diamond League, and they'll be back uh, uh, like actual to crop. But the rest are in camp in Eldoret in high altitude, and they are training well. That we have, I was telling you, we have one of the best teams ever, and we, we expect uh, good things in Rio. The, the trials were fireworks. Like, Rodisha uh, uh, was almost uh, battled out of the team, but he, he was put in. In 10,000, we. We, we have uh, Camarol and we have um, uh, the, the, the other fellow who beat uh, Mofara and we, uh, we expect to fire up in uh, Rio. The team is good in 800, in the team, uh, and all through to marathon. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza.
Afrika amka na unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN Envoy expresses concerns over the political situation in the DRC. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi begins state visit to South Africa and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu meets his Ethiopian counterpart. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutu Ramagaza, technical producer Sihlen Dovu, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Busim Song with a song titled Yesisani Umoya.